Welcome to the Rising Laterally podcast. Each episode, you will learn something fascinating so you can bring big ideas to your small talk. Your growth is our growth. Listening to these episodes, subscribing to our weekly newsletter, engaging our posts on social media, and sharing our show with your friends and family is deeply appreciated as we work hard to expand this platform. You can also visit our page at buymeacoffee.com to contribute what you think the show is worth. To the folks who are taking this step, we can't thank you enough. Look for the link in our show notes for more details about how you can support and follow us. And now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the 76th episode of the Rising Laterally podcast. Thank you so much for hitting play and spending time with us. It really is a humbling experience. Uh, We definitely appreciate your support. So our guest today is Dr. Ronald Purser, Ron for short. Uh, He lives in San Francisco. He's a professor uh, in the College of Business at San Francisco State University. He earned his PhD in organizational behavior from Case Western, and he's been part of the cultural scene actually for a number of years, especially after his viral article, Beyond McMindfulness, which really set him up in 2019 to release the book that we're going to be talking a little bit about today right here called McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. It was published by Repeater Books. Ron, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing space. We're really looking forward to this conversation with you. No, thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to it. Awesome. And uh, by the way, uh, we were talking about this offline a little bit, but shout out to San Francisco. Shout out to all the folks that are listening uh, to us in San Francisco right now. That place is near and dear to my heart really both of our hearts. Jay lives there right now. It's a city that I landed in, uh, in on Halloween of 2013 from New Jersey. I spent six years there. Um, it's where I got married. It's really where I broke through a lot of my comfort zones. And, um, I really just enjoy that place. So I'm really, uh, I love the fact that you're sitting in San Francisco right now. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I love it here. I'm right on the ocean almost. Nice. It's beautiful. Nice. Yeah. You're a little bit South, but uh, we won't give the exact location. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No no GPS coordinates, please. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh but shifting to thinking about the premise of your book, I think it's actually important to wrap it in the context of maybe your own life experience. Uh you've been training as a Buddhist since 1981 and you're an ordained Buddhist teacher, which is important because now I'm really going to oversimplify your book and I hope you can expand on it, but it's important mm-hmm. because you're sharing the perspective that mindfulness and the business that's been built around it cleverly deflects real issues. And it also ties in Buddhism to try to appear quote unquote deep when really that might be superficial. It's very surface level. And so mindfulness becomes this exercise which makes you turn inwards into your own personal well being. Mindful mix, mindfulness makes you think that you too are wholly responsible and you're responsible for digging out of whatever situation you're in, as opposed to exercising and looking outwards to see what, you know, issues are that exist in society, you know, to look where the imbalances exist and maybe try to figure out if we can balance those imbalances. So I really find that really interesting in the context of your experience as a Buddhist teacher uh, and someone who's been practicing since 1981. But can you expand on the premise of your book a little bit? And maybe I missed something. No, I think that was a very nice introduction. Thank you uh, for taking the time to really study and and read the book. And um, Well, I think I wrote the book really not as a critique of mindfulness itself, actually, Although okay. it may it may initially look like it, uh, it's just completely uh, lampooning uh, mindfulness, but really more as an expose uh, uh, of how it became uh, a commodified uh, uh, sp- capitalist spirituality is is the way I I characterize it. So, um, and and so it's yes on the surface. Uh, you know, if you look at the very uh, surface layer uh, of what I call McMindfulness, it's sort of the most gross, uh, the most crass sort of uh, 
commodification of mindfulness in the marketplace. Uh, for example, you know, there was a uh, there was some conference or some convention, I think, down in Los Angeles uh, a couple years back called the Mindful Mindfulness Expo- Exposition or Mindful Expo or something like that. Okay. And it was nothing but, you know, just booths of people selling their wares, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But that's just a really kind of just the surface level of, of the critique. Um, so, I mean, mindfulness really caught my attention. Uh, going back around 2010, 2012 or so. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, even though I've, yeah, like you said, I, I sort of discovered Buddhism in my uh, 20s. And, uh, uh, but it wasn't up, it was really funny because it wasn't until like, nine, uh, well, 2010 or so. I never even came across the word mindfulness. Um, I guess because my tradition was more uh, in the Tibetan and in the Zen traditions where mindfulness per se is not really central uh, to those traditions, even though they're doing practices that are based on mindfulness. So when I saw it become so popular around 2010, 2011, uh, I started saying, well, hmm, now I'm starting to understand that mindfulness uh, in early Buddhism was very, very central, you know, the Theravada tradition of early Buddhism. And what we see now is uh, the modernist version of mindfulness coming out of uh, uh, Burma and coming out of uh, Thailand, you know, that was exported uh, in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries and eventually found its way to the United States. So make a long story short, uh, I really have a, a, a deep appreciation for these traditions, and, but I was really kind of taken aback by the whole sort of uh, uh, rise of mindfulness as a uh, uh, commodified uh, version of it in, in, in the marketplace. So that's that's why I really you know started to become interested in it, uh, and I was really kind of puzzled because, you know, back in the '60s and '70s, uh, you know, really Zen was the real popular form uh, uh, of Buddhism back then, and everything was more like countercultural, anti-establishment, anti-materialist, the hippies, mm-hmm. uh, even before that, the Beat Generation was real interested in, in Buddhism. But it was very countercultural, so I was really baffled. I was sort of surprised by how it morphed, you know, so quickly into uh, becoming sort of this uh, panacea for, uh, you know, over-promising uh, and touting, you know, all, all its benefits as a panacea or as a cure, cure-all for just about anything. And uh, that's what really kind of puzzled me and why I you know, really started to pay attention to it. Uh, and the more I did, the more uh, I started to see it, you know, emerge in the corporate world. And that's when I said, oh, my God, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a professor of management, so I have a background. Uh, I used to do a lot of management consulting, too, uh, over the years. And so I have a good feel for uh, how consultants and how uh, management trainers uh sort of retool themselves based on what's trendy and what mm. sells. And I saw a lot of that happening in the corporate sector. And uh, so, you know, I started connecting the dots and I basically learned a lot in the process. And uh, so my book is really meant as, uh, there's a lot of hype, you know, the mindfulness hype. And I felt like in order to cut through the noise uh, of all that, I really had to go go really strong with a kind of a polemical style. Mm. Um, and, and so I see it as a public intervention in a way. Uh, and it's an ideological critique more than anything else. So I'm, I'm really kind of critically questioning the hype and the exaggerated claims, uh, exposing and trying to deconstruct the ways that it's been selectively appropriated, how it's kind of become refashioned into an instrumental technique uh, 
for personal gain and how it's also sort of appealed more to upper and white middle class sort of uh, demographic, uh, how it's become highly individualistic, uh, kind of a do-it-yourself DIY approach. It, it kind of integrates itself within the whole sort of uh, uh, framework of, of the wellness industry and their, their therapeutic culture in a, in, a, in a kind of a widespread uh, sort of way. So um, that was basically my impetus or my my impulse for writing the book yeah thank you for sharing that jay you might have a question i was going to say like you know you mentioned 2020 2010 and 2012 and how you started to notice it in the corporate sphere were you also noticing it within the academic sphere as well the academic sphere um I don't know exactly what you mean by that. Like uh, within like professors, were you seeing it at universities? Was it also, in, it feels like it was infiltrating all parts of society. Uh -huh. I know you mentioned corporate place specifically. I definitely want to dive into that. I think there's a, I think that's really going to resonate in terms of, you know, um, people listening, you know, diving into that, but I was just yeah. curious. I was just curious. Well, yeah, I think from the academic side, um, that's a really that's a, actually a good observation because, uh, yeah, it was around that time that um, clinical psychology um, um, was uh, starting to do a lot of uh, research on mindfulness. Mm. So you saw a lot of uh, psychologists and. Uh, Academic, in academic medicine, behavioral medicine, um, a lot of interest uh, in doing uh, random controlled uh, uh, trials to look at the efficacy of various types of uh, mindfulness interventions, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and so there was kind of a, a burgeoning of interest in the scientific uh, academic communities. Um, and that really became exponential uh, in a short amount of time. And that, I think that was one of the key drivers for how it became so mainstream. Uh, some people have called that the scientization of mindfulness because now you have the arbiter of science, the le legitimacy of science uh, uh, to say that, oh, the mindfulness works, science proves it, you know. So right. <laughs> once you have that stamp of authority, a legitimacy, then um, – it's sort of signed, sealed, and deliver. It's an easy, it's an easy sell, especially when you're selling it to public uh, sector, like such as schools, public schools, um, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, that was definitely the case. It was, uh, it was that was a trend that really kind of uh, made sure that mindfulness became uh, acceptable in secular society. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it seems like people were able to identify that there was a product here in mindfulness that could be commodified. They got the backing from the scientific community that they needed to actually productize it. And then it sounds like corporate America was very happy to embrace it because as you talk about in the book, mindfulness for most people is sort of used as a kind of pacification of their inner frustration of their anger facing the environment they're surrounded with either in at a professional level or at a communal level. Uh, so it seems like it kind of started as a product. It was just a business opportunity. And then it maybe gained even more traction because people realized that it could be used as a sort of, as you say in the book, a kind of palliative measure to keep people docile in their current position. Yeah. I think though that Initially, I think mindfulness started out very modest in its uh, its initial phase, mm. uh, because if you go back historically to uh, its roots, I mean, its modern roots in terms of its uh, well, its situatedness within uh, the medical community. So, I mean, it started in the basement of a hospital in uh, in Massachusetts uh, with John Kabat Zinn's. Uh, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction approach, MBSR. 
So it started out very modest to offer uh, an eight-week program to uh, patients who uh, were suffering from chronic pain and anxiety. Uh, they, they may have had um, physical conditions that um, uh, they were seeking, you know, uh, drugs weren't helping them or whatever it may have been. Uh, and, and it went on like that for at least 10 years or so, I would say, maybe 15. But then, uh, as we just said, as we just talked about, the, as the scientific community latched onto it, uh, and then as the media kind of also uh, uh, teamed up uh, uh, with with all these vectors coming together, mm. um, and it, I think one of the trigger events was uh, public broadcasting uh, PBS. Uh, Bill Moyers had a special. I think it was in 1990. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember the exact title of it, with the Healing Mind or something. And one of the segments was um, where Bill My- Bill Moyers um, sat in on John Kabat-Zinn's course. And once that got out into the public, you know, that sort of just then reverberated and got the word out. And suddenly, you know, it, be- it started percolating. A lot of interest started uh, occurring. So I think it was a, it was you know modest at first. It was you know kind of uh, confined to a medical setting, uh, but once it, the spiritual entrepreneurs got a hold of it, as you were pointing out, it was become a product. It became commodified. Then the genie's out of the bottle at that point, right? Then you know at least in the medical setting. There's some semblance of ethics. There's some sort of, you know, do no harm sort of uh, ethical commitment uh, going on. Uh, but once it gets into the corporate setting, corporations, once it gets into the U.S. military, then, you know, it's a whole different story at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's actually dive into that for a moment, because in your book, you mentioned that, uh, quote, as a management professor and a longstanding Buddhist practitioner, I felt a moral duty to start speaking out when large corporations with questionable ethics and dismal track records and corporate social responsibility began introducing mindfulness programs as a method of performance enhancement. And so I guess pulling off of that, uh, there's this element that you talk about in the book that basically mindfulness at work creates a situation where people are just better adjusted cogs. And so just trying to extrapolate that and pull some threads off of it, I'm wondering if we can actually talk about maybe the type of impact a mindfulness program in the workplace could be having or should be having. So like from your perspective, you know, if you were talking to a founder of a company, they're 18 years old, they're just starting a startup, or if you were talking to the CEO of one of the largest firms, whether they're 18 years old or 60 years old, I'd be curious as to what you might want to share with them if they are considering implementing a mindfulness program and if you think there might be alternatives to enhance worker performance in place of that mindfulness program. Yeah, I could do that. Um, but could I uh, go back a few few steps first? Um, Please. Because I think we have to unpack this a little bit more. Um, yeah when it comes to corporate mindfulness. And I think we could start with how I called into question really um, what I felt was the diagnosis, uh, that the diagnosis uh, just seemed a little too convenient for me. In other words, that the stress that people were experiencing uh, supposedly had nothing to do with their ac- either their actual material conditions or the unreasonable demands that were being placed upon them in the workplace. Instead, stress was kind of framed and uh, as this private subjective uh, condition. Mm-hmm. In other words, the individual needed to take personal responsibility for the stress they were experiencing. And that's because it did come out of a medical setting and because behavioral uh, medicine is based on individual interventions and it has a medical understanding of stress it has a de- depoliticized understanding of stress as, bi- as a biological uh, a source of stress is biological 
So I, I felt that that was a little too convenient. Uh, and when you kind of place the burden and the locus of control uh, of psychological stress entirely upon the individual, that what that does is it erases any questions of a larger diagnosis of what are the sources of stress besides just individual reactivity. If someone has, uh, you know, the way we respond to situations is our responsibility. Right. We can't, we can't, uh, rule that out. But <laughs> there's a lot of other factors going on that cause workplace stress besides, you know, the fact that, you know, maybe I, I have an anger problem. <laughs> maybe I, maybe there's a reason I have an anger problem in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, now look at what's happened with the great resignation. Yeah. People have kind of wised up to the fact that, you know, I kind of like the quality of, uh, quality of life I have now by not having to, uh, drive, you know, uh, 60 miles in, in rush hour traffic and, and, uh, work nine to five. I'm more productive at home, you know, so, um, anyway. To make a long story short, um, the social and environmental factors that contribute to stress are sort of not part of the equation in, in the mindfulness industry, especially in the corporate mindfulness industry. Huh. So I, I really needed to challenge that dominant narrative uh, that privatizes the causes of stress. And this is then how it becomes co-opted in a way. Uh, and how it can function as a form of social control, uh, because by placing the burden squarely on the individual employee, you know, it basically lets the corporation off the hook for any responsibility for the stressors that they are generating within their own corporate culture, for example. So that's one point I, I really needed to make first. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, this, the idea of privatization and how we privatize, you know, even mental health issues have become highly privatized. And it's kind of a part of a whole historical trend of how capitalism has always kind of co-opted spiritualities and turned them into these highly individualistic forms, which are then accommodated to uh, the dominant economic and of values uh, uh, and, and corporate interests, so corporate corporatized type spiritualities. So, um, you know, a, a great example of this. Um, one of the more more recent examples, of course, you may have seen this in the in the media, is uh, Amazon's uh, working wellness program, which uh, now is called Amazon. Uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, they uh, yeah. There's there was quite a few articles out there about three or four months ago about this, and um, uh, as we all know, Amazon has been putting. I don't know if you saw that. What was uh, uh, the British comedian's show who did a whole special? John Oliver. John Oliver's uh, special on Amazon's uh, anti-union campaigns. Uh, in fact, one of my colleagues at San Francisco State, he was. Uh, some of his articles were quoted on that show. John Logan. Oh, very cool. Uh, um, but on the shop floor of these warehouses at Amazon, they have these little kiosks, these booths that are vertical booths. They kind of look like upright coffins. You know, and so uh, <laughs> employees can go into these booths and, and they have these interactive uh, uh, videos uh, and you can kind of like take a three-minute break and watch a mindfulness video and uh, then go back to work. So, wow, yeah. yeah. So, to me, it was like that was like the po – Amazon, Amazon or whatever it's called is now like the, the new poster child for me for corporate mindfulness programs mm, mm -hmm. that exactly do what I'm talking about, how they place the burden on an individual and not address any of the, the systemic and structural factors that are causing stress in the, uh, in the environment. Right. So, uh, uh, but you're going back to your question. Uh, how can mindfulness, corporate mindfulness, work? Uh, can you rephrase your question for yeah, me? Yeah, basically, so in place, a better sense of it. Yeah, 
yeah, what, what advice would you give to someone who's either 18 or 57? You know, they're, they're leading a company, whether it's a startup or established in place of a mindfulness program as a way to enhance employee productivity. What do you think is a better alternative to get employees to actually produce more and produce more efficiently and be happier? Well, I'm not so sure I would support any of those, uh, okay. uh postulates, um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, this whole link between mindfulness and happiness too is something that I find troublesome. So let's poke uh, holes. Okay. Um, but to be fair, let's, let's try to think this through. I think that, um, there are ways of, of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, Rescuing, maybe that's not quite the right word. Uh, uh, reforming mindfulness in salvaging, maybe? salvaging, yeah. reforming, revisioning. Yeah. That's yeah. a nicer word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are we really talking about? First of all, when we say mindfulness, I think that that is such a general word in itself that we need to get clear on what that means and what that looks like because. Uh, it's too vague now. Uh, there's so many people banding the word around. What are they actually doing when they're teaching mindfulness? What are they actually teaching? Mm. They might be so, teaching awareness. Like just the simple fact of awareness equals mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I think, I think that we need to take a step back and, and uh, ask ourselves, um, what is it we really are? What are we really trying to do? Um, and what kind of company are you trying to create uh, as a founder? Uh, uh, and if you know, I think it's going to tie back into your your values as a founder. And um, but the problem we have with that again, it gets back to almost like an economic institutional problem is. Once a company goes public, you often see uh, all those great ideas and humanistic values that the founder has uh, kind of goes to the wayside because now they're tied to uh, a whole different set of expectations uh, uh, in terms of uh, their uh, responsibilities to their shareholders. So we have a system in place that uh in effect, kind of ties the hands of even people who want to really do the best thing, uh, you know, and for public uh, companies. But right. I guess, you know, if you're a private company or you haven't gone public, you probably have a lot more uh, autonomy and more degrees of freedom to do things that uh, are not subject to that sort of uh, co-optation, right? Uh, so I think we should look at it that way and be realistic about it. Um, because I know I've known CEOs who, or division managers, uh, who, you know, really have supported some very humanistic, uh, programs, but boy, it's hard. It's hard if you don't have that champion there mm. or you have these other quarterly pressures, uh, yeah. That these are some are some of these programs are the first thing to be cut in a corporate mm. setting. Interesting. Uh, I've seen that uh, many happen many many times, and that's because our, our view of the organization is such that uh, we don't see that it's an, a set of interacting forces between, for example, shareholders, customers, and employees. And each one of those triad of forces are pulling in their own directions. In other words, shareholders want to maximize their value. Customers want to maximize their value. They want the lowest cost, the highest quality, best service. Employees want to maximize their value. They want the highest salary, the best quality of life. And so they're all kind of pulling in opposite directions. There's tensions. And managers are then put in the middle of those tensions. And more often than not, they side with the shareholders mm -hmm. because their bread is buttered by the people above them. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you, how do you counteract these, these forces that are pulling in opposite directions? 
I think it requires a whole revisioning of what we, how we conceive of organizations and their purpose in society, right? I mean, this is kind of the whole sort of uh, deeper movement that I think we're up against with with kind of the uh, the, the worst side of capitalism, you know, in terms of what it does, in terms of ravaging the the natural environment, creating all these mm. massive inequities. Uh, and so when you talk about mindfulness, you have to look at uh, this much more complex set of uh, systemic forces that are going on. And, and then kind of try to ask yourself, well, what can we do within the midst of these forces? And, uh, not to try to oversell it, right? And not to make overpromise things, I think, too. Yeah. Uh, but I think on the ground, on the ground, I think that mindfulness programs in a corporate setting should be integrated with, um, an ongoing sort of commitment to corporate social responsibility and that, um, uh, so there should be kind of a strategic level, uh, and then uh, an operational level of mindfulness that interact with each other. So that, for example, uh, when you uh, start training employees in mindfulness, part of that program would include kind of an organizational diagnosis uh, of okay, let's let's uh, have a dialogue. Let's have kind of a uh, an inquiry into what's causing, uh, what are the sources of stress in our workplace? Hmm. Let's try to uh, catalog those and diagnose the real root causes of those. And how can we link what we're doing with mindfulness to an organizational change initiative so that we can actually uh, address those sources of stress in a systemic way and not just put the burden just on employees themselves so it doesn't become this band-aid approach, this co-optive approach. Right. And that's kind of the advice. That's what I'd like to see. Also, like if you're in a, a service uh, environment where, uh, well, they call it emotional labor, you know, where you have to kind of put on a smiley face all day. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you know, and what you're doing, especially yeah. for facing the customer yeah. directly. Uh-huh. There's some been interesting research recently. I, I can't quote the, the exact article. I'd have to dig it up. But they found that um, by offering mindfulness programs to those sorts of employees, it actually caused more stress for them because they <laughs> had to. <laughs> then they said, you know, uh, the way I get through the day, you know, is, you know, I really don't want to know what my real feelings are. <laughs> right, this right. is how I actually get through the day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. don't make me more mindful right now. I mean, this is how I deal with stress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's <laughs> it, there's like these counterintuitive uh, things that can occur that we, you know, it's not just like uh, one size fits all. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, as you say, it's a Band-Aid. Yeah. 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 And the, the way I kind of read some of the big themes of the book, it's like mindfulness helps preserve the status quo by putting people in a position to accept the way things are now. So if the status quo, if we had all the bigger stuff figured out, the bedrock issues figured out, then there wouldn't be such a deception at play in the way that corporate organizations are pushing mindfulness as a positive when in reality, it's just reinforcing the same negative things that have been impacting our culture for decades. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's been some interesting studies too, like out of Stanford. I think I mentioned that in the book as well. Like, um, uh, I think it was Jeffrey Pfeiffer, uh, Stanford uh, Graduate Business School. He he did kind of a, a meta-analysis of uh, what were the structural and systemic factors that were causing stress, work, workplace stressors basically. And he's, it came down to like unrealistic job demands, long work hours, bad bosses, lack of autonomy, you know, not being able to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some, some sectors, lack of healthcare, uh, fear of layoffs, job insecurity. Uh, 
And, you know, those are not individualistic psychological problems. Those are workplace problems. Those are structural problems of the corporation. Yeah. And, uh, and so when you get people like, uh, some of these corporate, uh, 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 mindfulness guys like David Vigelis, he wrote a book called Mindful Work. Um, I, I always quote him because he's, he kind of sums it up. He, he had a quote that said, uh, yeah, it wants something like stress is, uh, isn't something imposed on us. It's something we impose on ourselves. Mm. And, uh, you know, when you buy into that premise, then you basically have, like you say, you're, you're basically promoting this, uh, co-optation and, uh, accommodation, accommodationist orientation to, to the status quo. Uh, because then you think stress is just something inside your head and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's a form of victim blaming at some level. Mm, right. Yeah. Uh, it comes down to that at some level. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that I should be careful because I'm not, I'm also not suggesting that employees couldn't get benefit from individualistic mindfulness programs or that people shouldn't take care of themselves, the whole idea of self-care. Because people do derive uh, therapeutic, modest therapeutic benefits from mindfulness practices. So the thing is, is that it's not either or. You know, mm. we have to look both at both the individual and the environment. Uh, but the problem is we've kind of the tilted the pendulum way over to the individual in 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 our society mm -hmm. yeah. like we do with most everything else yeah, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i liked your idea around trying to group an individual with an ongoing social responsibility from the corporate side as a way to kind of tie this all together everyone moving in the same direction but what I'm trying to think about is actually how mindfulness kind of hits on this element of posturing that takes place. When I think about mindfulness, I kind of think of maybe something like greenwashing that oh, comes yeah. to, you know, that comes to mind. Uh, in your book, I was introduced to a concept called saffron washing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that that was new to me. But my point is that like I'm observing that I think we're going into more of a society where it's really centered on posturing, and I could be wrong. But I'm oh, curious, Instagram kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just like, you know, virtue signaling and all yeah. that stuff. And so I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are in terms of the potential, uh, like I'm asking basically, do we, do you feel like we're in a culture of posturing? And if we are, what are maybe the second and third order of effects mm -hmm. of that type of culture? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, uh, yeah, I've talked about that. Um, uh, I have a colleague, uh, Andrea Jane, and I interviewed her on my podcast too. Uh, her book is uh, Peace, Love, Yoga, The Global Politics of Spirituality. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so she looks at it, she looks at more at yoga. You know, it's very mm -hmm. similar. She's kind of doing the same thing in her book that I did with McMindfulness and she actually uses the term neoliberal spiritualities, which I think really kind of gets at it. Oh, um, yeah. Um, but uh, she made the point that, you know, this kind of uh, spirituality, whether it's mindfulness or yoga, in terms of this virtue singling, it's kind of performative politics in a way, uh, the way she characterizes it. Um that, you know, if I buy something that, you know, is, uh, has some sort of, uh, green certification or whatever, um, then, you know, oh, I'm being political, you know, look what I got. I've got my little bag here. It's made with organic products or whatever it might be. And, um, <laughs> I yeah. think that also, um, you see that, you see that a bit with, you know, with, with in the mindfulness circle, um, I, I'm more cynical and more, much more kind of cynical about 
more of the uh, fake, uh, almost like persona that people take on mindfulness. Um, it's almost like there's this kind of like narrow bandwidth of acceptable behavior and emotional range, you know, that you have to abide within. Mm. Um, and um, I've been to mindfulness conferences and I'm like, <laughs> um, I'm like, what is wrong with these people? I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I won't like use a any, character. Uh, yeah. It's uh, like very placid, yeah. very tame. You're saying, I would, I would love to see Larry David walk into a mindfulness. Oh, yeah. Conference. Oh my God, it'd be hilarious. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it could be an episode. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I kind of. No, but on that, actually, yeah. it's interesting because maybe you can talk about how you've seen uh, mindfulness coaches, let's just say, for lack of a better word, basically give a pitch to companies. And yeah. in those pitch decks, you often see a lot of the same slides and oh, they try God. to wow you yeah. with images of the brain, but that's not really true. And so maybe you can touch on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, this is, this is the spiritual entrepreneurial marketplace of ideas where it's mostly glitz and, and, you know, slick kind of presentations. Uh, yeah, I think I mentioned that one of the cases is that I went to this workshop uh, that was actually pitched as "Here's how you sell corporate mindfulness." <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, and so you know, I went in there and okay, uh, okay, let's see what he has to say. And uh, I was just stunned, you know, in terms of the corporate speak, um, the kind of the uh, very uh, deliberate. A strategy to disguise what you're doing, you know, to kind of change the language. In fact, he kept going on about, you know, it's all about the language. It's all about mm. the language. Don't even use the word mindfulness. Mm. Wow. And yeah, uh, yeah there are some other consultant. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Aristotle's, you know, approach to persuasion. Mm. But, you know, you tell a real emotional story and you get people, you know, to empathize with that story and show a few slides of the brain here. Here's your brain on mindfulness and <laughs> a couple fMRI slides with a lot of colors of the brain lit lighting yeah, up. Right. And before you know it, you've, you've sold it. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, that's pretty cynical, but um, it's part of the game. It's part of the consulting game of marketing. Um, it's part uh, of the game too, because the person that's receiving this information many times don't even know what to look for. So those slides look really appealing. And so that is part of the game, just knowing who your audience is. And they're probably, they don't even know what to look out for. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, you know, buyer beware. I, it's, uh, it's, it's true that, you know, if you're, if you're a complete newbie, uh, uh, you don't have a baseline from which to judge. So, uh, and that's, that's, you know, it's, that's why it's so popular. It's easy sell. It's a very easy sell. It's a $2.2 billion industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that should tell us something that, uh, it, uh, and so it's speaking to a need too. I mean, so, um, we can't True. just blame it all on the entrepreneurs. I mean, there's, and what is that need? You know, we should be asking that question and how can we address those needs in a way that might be a little more responsible and that rather than just, uh, you know, capitalizing people's, uh, uh ignorance or, or, or naivete, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we, we, we do have a need, uh, in our society, uh, we're a very divisive society right now. Uh, we are experiencing a tremendous uncertainty uh, at a juncture in uh, our history right now. And we do uh, and have been sensing that material wealth does not satisfy uh, our deepest needs. So we have some deep knowledge that something is missing. And that 
that hole is quite gaping. It's a gaping hole, and it's easy to manipulate people. It's easy to fool people into uh, saying, well, if you buy X, Y, and Z, that hole will be plugged up. And uh, oftentimes it's not. And that's why, you know, the wellness industry, you, you can never be too well in the wellness industry. There's always something else that's going to come along and, yeah. uh, you know, give you something better. Uh, mm. And um problem is, is a lot of these techniques, uh, and they are techniques, uh, basically appeal to our desire and our need for certainty. Hmm. Uh, and in a way, they're kind of a mechanism to protect ourselves. And, uh, uh, and so a lot of mindfulness practices uh, are used in a way to uh, offer some sort of palliative temporary relief uh, mm -hmm. That that we 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 really you know des we're desperate, and so it provides that sort of temporary uh, quick fix of reducing anxiety. But it doesn't get to the deeper question I was talking about: Why do we feel such a deep lack? Right? Why are right. we so insecure as a species? Um, uh, we have a sense that something's not quite right. Uh, and it's almost that our models for knowledge and how we produce knowledge are so outward oriented. We're very good technologically. We're very good at coming up with material goods and, and advancements in, in our, uh, standard of living and, 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 but there's something missing in that whole picture there that we can't quite get our put our finger on right and um religions the institution of religions is no longer viable it's no longer speaking to us mm -hmm. so yeah. that's not on the table anymore uh and, and it's almost as if politics has taken over religion it's really like it. politics is our new religion Right, for sure. People are so passionate about when nobody's cared about the news or politics before, <laughs> and now yeah. you know, you know, it's almost like a jihad, uh, <laughs> yeah, in our country. Uh, and so, again, we're we can't seem to find the uh, the diagnosis seems to be flawed, number one, and we can't seem to put our finger on. What it is we're really looking for, but we know we know we're missing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use that word lack, and I actually wanted to read a quote from Eckhart Tolle that I read actually after reading your book, and I was kind of a fan of Eckhart Tolle prior to reading your book. But some of the ideas that you shared really helped me look at his language through a very different lens. So I'll read the quote here. If the thought, whether it be money, recognition, or love, has become part of who you think you are, you will always experience lack. Rather than acknowledge the good that is already in your life, all you see is lack. And, you know, I actually want to use this term that uh, the philosopher Dan Dennett coined, which is called a deepity. So I think uh, that is squarely, you know, fits in the definition of Dennett's idea of what a deepity is. So it's a phrase that seems true and profound but is actually ambiguous and shallow. And the distinguishing feature of a DPD is that it has two possible interpretations. So on the first reading, a DPD is true, but trivial. That's kind of the Trojan horse uh, that serves as the vehicle for the second reading, which is false, but would be mind-blowing if it were true. And that second reading is where the bullshit kind of gets smuggled in. So like on the first reading of Toll's statement, don't focus on the lack because if you do, all you'll ever see is lack. Okay, that's true. It's kind of tautological, but it's true. But the second more profound reading really is regardless of whatever lack you face, look away from it because if again, if you focus on the lack, that's all you'll ever see. And that would be nice if the world worked that way, but it's really, it doesn't work that way. That's kind of bunk advice. You know, we're flesh and blood creatures. We've gotten this far by facing our lacks and, you know, facing those most fundamental hungers and satisfying them. So I think it's important. I think that was just an interesting quote that helped me 
see what you were talking about in terms of the superficiality of some of these ostensibly like deep statements. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've never been a fan of Tole. Um, and uh, I remember trashing him on Amazon um, a long time ago. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah. Um, maybe another way of thinking about this too, in terms of mindfulness, and maybe it's similar to Tolle, um, is that um, some mindfulness uh, programs, uh, a slate of hand kind of occurs. And what I mean by that is, have you heard of the term uh, iotrogenesis? I have not. I have not. uh yeah, it's a term in medicine where the cure itself uh, is a problem. Hmm. Uh, and I kind of see that in a way. Uh, and we've been talking about it somewhat uh, in terms of the poor diagnosis and how uh, we misdiagnose the, the cultural problem as being nothing but uh, individualistic, uh, problem of maladaptation and stress is kind of located completely within the individual source of stress. And, uh, so that leaves, um, the larger social and political and economic systems under critiqued, mm. right? Uh, and so in that way, in that case, we kind of op, we kind of obscure the, the deeper, layers of, uh, of society. And, uh, and that's how it can kind of mask the problem, you know? Uh, and that's what I mean by slate of hand. It says, okay, uh, you're the problem, the individual, you know, we kind of do this kind of slate of hand, uh, and we kind of offset the systemic and social factors to point the finger at more at the individual who's the problem. Mm. Um, so self-care, you know, I think it can be a radical act, but until we kind of also take into account others and we take into account, uh, structural and social and political uh, dimensions, in other words, a more global kind of a global knowledge of the problem, not just an individualistic uh, approach, um, uh, but yeah, I think these these sorts of new age uh, 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 these new age sort of uh, uh, trivial points are just not helpful. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Are you are you optimistic about the future, Ron? Do you see society going in a different direction than it has over the last fifty years since the sixties and seventies? When the wellness movement really kind of started emerging, well, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I should make this point, but I was thinking. I've been telling a few other people about this lately. That back in, I think it was two thousand. Uh, I actually read this book. Now that it's become popular, it's actually been appropriated more by the the right wing, which is unfortunate. <laughs> Mm. But you've heard, have you heard the book, The Fourth Turning? I have heard of the title, yeah. Yeah, I've not read it. Yeah. Well, I think it – I don't know. I haven't done my research lately on it, but evidently I think Steve Bannon uh, – That's where a, I heard it, yeah. I heard it in it. Yeah, association with his name. Yeah. <laughs> okay, which is that's, – that's too bad. But um, yeah. I think it's a really good piece of work, and they're social historians and – they basically looked at uh, these patterns in history going way, way, way back. But they're focused focused more on American history. And um, so we've been in a period of what they call the unraveling uh, period, about 20 years. Um, basically, when culture just becomes so polarized. Uh, um, but anyway, it's based on these 80-year cycles, and each generation is about 20 years or so. And uh, we're entering the crisis period. Uh, and these these cycles repeat throughout history. 
So, for example, when we were in the 60s during the uh, hippie generation and and rock and roll and, and LSD was on the scene, uh, we were in this uh, a whole different period, right? A whole different uh, period of awakening is what he called it. So, um, I think we're in, in, in for some tough times, I think, the next 20 years. Uh, and, uh, so maybe, well, okay, maybe 2042, I'll be optimistic. Hmm. <laughs> we have something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> I got to make it till then. <laughs> I'm a lot easier for you two than me. Yeah. I'm trying my best. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, because I was also th- I was also trying to understand, like you know, what would change the pace of this mindfulness movement? What would you know? And to Jay's question, like, are you more or less optimistic about the future? Um, but yeah, I think you just addressed that. Well, I don't know. Um, you know, I think what's interesting about the COVID shutdown and what that's done, um, I think people have become a, a lot more attuned to their values uh, and what they don't want to put up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, True. I mean, I mean, not everyone has that luxury, uh, but many people have come to uh, kind of a reckoning with that. No, I'm not. I'm not going to go back to work. I'm not going to go to that place anymore. I've got other options. Uh, and, you know, I think that labor now is in a position uh, that has some leverage. Uh, and I hope that, you know, we could take advantage of that, of this situation to place the demands on the workplace to uh, change their ways for a change. You guys be more mindful. You know, it's your, it's on you guys yeah. for a change. You know, don't tell me that to work nine to five. I could do my work yeah. and my own time, my own hours. I'm just I'm more productive without having to come to the office on a strict schedule. Uh-huh. Uh, so we we could take back, you know, uh, our rights in some ways. Uh, in that respect, uh, so I, I think that's uh, that's one positive thing I see coming out of this uh, COVID pandemic, uh, and. Uh, uh, what else? What What else did you ask? Sorry. Oh no, I think you covered that. Um, but in terms of you know just other things that we could we could talk about, you know, in the book you talk about mindfulness in schools, you talk about mindfulness in military, which I found really interesting. Um, because I think your grandfather also served in uh, the war, so thank you for his service. But um, I found it interesting. Uh having mindfulness in the military. Um, I don't know if you want to expand on that, but basically like the fact that you have warriors that could be improved warriors, basically, which I find interesting in the concept of war. Um, But really something you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, meeting or conversation, you mentioned how like there's this exaggeration of this kind of mindfulness playing itself out in the upper white middle-class sphere mm-hmm. of people. What did you actually mean by that? Like, what do you, what would you rather it be other people are experiencing mindfulness? Like what, what were you trying to say there? Oh, I think what I was trying to say in some respects was that um, the people who uh, spearheaded this whole movement um, had uh, the cultural and political capital uh to uh, gain entry into the major institutions where mindfulness has been able to uh, take root. Uh, and the way they did that was not by challenging those institutions, but by, by cooperating with them. Uh, and um, so there's a, a book called uh, The Mindful Elites by Jamie Kuczynskis, who's a sociologist, and uh, she basically tracks the whole process by which the mindfulness movement uh, was able to penetrate like schools and corporations and government and 
And it had to do with uh, having those connections, having the, the cultural capital uh, to uh, to gain entry, and uh, and so the promise was, or the logic was that, okay, once we sprinkle a few seeds of mindfulness in these places, such as the corporation, then we'll see. Eventually, we'll see this kind of. Uh, transformation of, uh, for example, the corporation to into a more social and environmentally responsible company. Uh, so we just need to kind of uh, at least get mindfulness started, get it planted, get it, uh, you know, embedded, and by uh, training managers um, over time, we'll see this kind of uh, real transformation in thinking and and policies and everything like that and i call that the uh uh the trojan horse uh, mm. uh promise of the trojan horse of so, uh if we just uh you know once it it's subversive they 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 saw what they were doing as subversive by gaining entry and then thinking if we give mindfulness for example to monsanto executives that over time monsanto will now you know Stop uh, producing these toxic chemicals, or stop, you know, ripping off uh, farmers in India and saying you can't have these seeds because it's these seeds are, you know, under our patent. They think that all these kind of, you know, uh, pursuit of corporate profit, uh, maximization of shareholder wealth will suddenly, you know, transform by giving people mindfulness. Uh, So, um. And you see that even even more so, uh, like I mean, mindfulness be- has become so popular that it, it was uh, invi- they were invited into uh, the World Economic Forum in- Forum at Davos, Switzerland, which is the yeah. mecca for yeah. corporate moguls and heads of state. Uh, it's the rich of the richest uh, kind of meeting. Uh, and open arms to mindfulness teachers at Davos. Hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, unlike, uh, who's the author of Humankind, the book Humankind, the Dutch, um, what's his name? Oh, God, I can't think of his last name now. But, um, hmm. he was invited there. Um, and he basically told them off. He said, How come you guys aren't paying taxes? Uh-huh. You know? mm. <laughs> to me, that was the most mindful teaching that was ever given at Davos when I made that statement. <laughs> I think you're talking about Bregman. Yes. Yeah, Bregman. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, no, and just, uh, to, you know, in terms of why I was thinking the uh, the military and the mindfulness connection was important, not only because your uncle was in Vietnam, but just, uh, I know, according to your book, you write that you believe every effort should be made to ensure that soldiers and veterans receive the best available medical and psychological treatments for PTSD. Um, how do you feel we're making progress on that? I, I really couldn't tell you. I'm not up on, on what, okay. what, the, what the VA is doing. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I was very critical of, of that whole movement within the military uh, of training people, training, training uh, soldiers in, it was more, I was more critical towards the uh, pre-combatant uh, uh, training. In other words, they were training soldiers before they were uh, deployed uh, to Afghanistan uh, to use mindfulness, uh, quasi, quasi-mindfulness practices on the battlefield. Um, and uh, so I, I saw that as basically... Uh, you know, the most sort of instrumentalization of mindfulness that you could find an example of in terms of separating it from the ethics of nonviolence, yeah. which mindfulness has always been uh, embedded in. And so it you know, basically became weaponized in a way uh, uh, in pre-combatant uh, training. And uh, I don't even really see what they're doing is mindfulness. I think it should be called attention enhancement training because mm. that's basically what it is. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, if you look at some of their own documents, uh, they call it uh, 
optimizing warrior performance uh, and enhancing the cognitive uh, capabilities of uh, of soldiers. Um, and uh, the military will invest in anything that optimizes warrior performance. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and uh, and. Uh, so you know, there's really no questioning of of the ends or the interests that, that these techniques serve, uh, and again, it places the burden on the individual soldier. You know, the individual soldier must learn to manage their own stress, just like the individual employee in the corporate workplace. And they're commanded. I mean, by command, they they have to do what they're told. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's. Uh, it's it's just the same thing. It's, it's you know mindfulness in the military is not going to address you know it's not going to prevent preemptive wars or moral injury or c- cultural trauma. Uh, uh, and you know I don't think that means that we should just jettison these techniques. Like I said, I'm not against mindfulness for people with PTSD. That's a whole different thing. Right, uh, but to, to use it as a weaponized uh, system uh, is a different. It's a different use of mindfulness, I think. And uh, I really took, I excuse the pun, pun, but I took aim at that approach. <laughs> nice. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah. No, this uh, it's been a great conversation. I know we're a little bit over the hour, um, and I actually feel like we could do a whole round two because I know that in outside of writing a book and teaching, you also, or you know, being a professor, you also teach courses that engage people in deep and sometimes really, you know, new kinds of inquiry. And you know, you explore space and time and knowledge and that connection. And so, I think we could have a whole separate conversation on that. But I find what you do with that really interesting. Um, because it's in a way focused on coping skills. And I feel like I know I could be better at coping skills. I feel a lot of people can be better at coping skills, but coping with life, coping with grief, coping with other people dealing with grief. I mean, there's just so many elements to coping um, that I find interesting that I think your other work hits on, which is fascinating. Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm teaching now at Dharma College in Berkeley, and uh, mm. I'm an associate instructor there now. So, yeah. Um, Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, it's been great, uh, Arjun and Jay. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. We Before we well. wrap, though, one last question we ask everyone. Okay. If you could be any animal for a day, what would you be and why? I have to be a dog. <laughs> We've been getting I mean, that answer a lot, recently. I mean, <laughs> I mean, my dog has the life, and uh, yeah. yeah, if I had to be reincarnated, I would definitely want to be a, a dog with a good owner. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that's Same. a big caveat. That's for sure a good owner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or someone could rescue me. I'd be fine with that too. Yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs> love that. No, Ron, appreciate uh, the time. Appreciate the contribution. I encourage uh, folks to go pick up like, mindfulness. Uh, get a get a different perspective on mindfulness and um yeah hopefully uh, we can do another round in the future good thank you thanks ron all right thanks if you enjoyed this episode you can sign up for the rising weekly newsletter sent out each week every friday we expand on the episode with insights recommendations and more you can sign up at risinglaterally.com thank you